0: Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. I I want you to think back. Our our wonderful worship team helped us to look back at a moment in, in history, in Israel's history, but there are moments that all of us can look to, moments of significance, moments where God came and touched your life, changed your life, set it on a new trajectory, moments in time where maybe you met the Lord for the first time, maybe that's when uh, you proposed to your wife, maybe that's when your child was born, moments that have shaped you and changed you. God works in moments of time. Moments of time. He changes us. He thrusts us sometimes into opportunities to glorify his name and set in motion things that have lasting significance. I think back to 1773 when these colonists up in Boston just were, were a little tired of things that were happening, the, the rule of the King of England and came to my mind this week since they got a new one. And here they, they dumped some tea in the harbor. We all remember that. It's called the Boston Tea Party in 1773. In 1774, the king of England imposed what we know as the Intolerable Acts, among the which uh, the Boston Port Act, freezing all commerce, shutting down, uh, trying to starve out the colonists, calling them back into obedience to the king interesting how we respond to moments of challenge. I think it's telling. Down in Virginia in the House of Burgess, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, Richard Henry Lee thought it would be a good idea to respond to what the king was doing. And do you know what the first thing that our founding fathers did in response to that enormous pressure? They prayed. They called for a resolution requiring the assembly to pray and to fast on a specific day just for the needs of the colonies. Now, when the, when the king's appointed governor, Lord Dunmore, heard about it, he comes in, he's waving the resolution over his head, castigating them for not asking him for help, or the king for help, and fires them. He dismissed them all, summarily dissolving the assembly. And a, a tall Virginian in the back of the room by the name of George Washington said, gentlemen, follow me. They went down the road to the Holiday Inn. Well, it wasn't the Holiday Inn. It was a a tavern called Raleigh Tavern, but I'm cleaning it up for church's sake. And they did two things. They repassed the resolution calling for a day of prayer and fasting, and they did it. George Washington recorded in his diary, keeping that uh, commitment with all of the members of the assembly. And they asked that, inquiries be made among all the colonies to see if they wanted to get together and and discuss perhaps the uniting as colonies or states. That's 1774. And in September of 1774, they gathered in Philadelphia, Carpenter's Hall, a few doors down from Independence Hall, to discuss that very thing, the first Congress. And before they did anything, they invited Reverend Duchesne, a local pastor, to come in. He read Psalm 35 and some other scriptures. They looked at the scriptures, and he prayed a very extemporaneous prayer that so moved the the gathered officials that John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail and said, even the Quakers wept. (laughs) It moved them. It was a moment. It was a moment where those men would set in motion something that not only you and I, but the rest of the world is enjoying freedom that they would have never known because of that response to that moment. Let me suggest that you and I have a moment that God's trusted us with. He's entrusted to us the stewardship of this moment in history, which is unlike any other. There are more things happening, more things going on, and just this past week, as I was in four different states speaking, I had conversations with a number of leaders who said we had no idea things would move at this quick of a pace. Uh, The the things that have challenged our culture, challenged our world, and yet God's placed us here. He's entrusted to you and I the stewardship of this moment. If you look back at the early church, what they experienced... What they were thrust into, the moment that God entrusted to their stewardship and influence. It was amazing. What they heard, what they witnessed, what was seen in them. Now, in, in Acts 4, we have recorded for us a very short message. When I say short message, don't anyone get excited. I'm not known for that. Peter's fourth message is here in this chapter. You recall his first sermon. In the book of Acts, chapter two, as he proclaimed the resurrection, as he preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were were transformed on the day of Pentecost. And then chapter three, verses 12 through 26 is recorded for us his second message, and over in chapter, um, here, chapter four, yeah, excuse me, chapter four is his third message, and it's his third message I want to look at. Now, I want to begin at verse number one, and as I began there in chapter number four, I, I want to give you some bad news. The bad news is things were bad, <laughs> and, and and let me let me give you some good news here. Maybe things are still bad <laughs> in regard to the challenges of presenting the gospel and sharing the gospel, it, sp- speaking the truth in a, in a culture that maybe doesn't want to hear it. It's still kind of challenging. Just as it was then. Not the first time this has happened. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. And as they spake to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Again, it's a unique moment. A lot of people say, I wish I'd lived in Bible times. It would have been so exciting. No, you don't. There was no Tylenol, <laughs> no, no medicines. You may or may not have lived a very long life. The challenges were greater then than we could have ever imagined. They weren't as simple and easy as we'd like to, to, uh, uh, to imagine. But, but in the midst of all this bad news, here's some good news. Look at at verse number four, howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. The number of the the men was about five thousand. Now Luke's writing this for us, this historical account of the early church, early church and sur- surmising that many historians surmise that be, the men being five thousand, that would equate to many more than that, with women and children that were following Jesus now. And so the good news is, in the hardest of times, in the most challenging of times, God shows up and he does great things. If you're glad for that, say amen. Amen. Hear me. God still does great things in the most challenging of times. He still does. Many of them were were trusting God, and and at some point, Dr. Luke loses count, and he would just say, uh, as he begins to or continues to write in this book, record of the history of the early church. He just calls them multitudes, we can't count them all, they're just that many, so many. An explosion of growth. It's, it's when the heat is turned up, often the church is at its best. Good friend of mine, Dr. Mark Smith, who is the former president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina, was in China a few years ago. That particular university has a lot of students who come from China and go back. And while there, meeting church leaders, underground church leaders, he, he asked them, what can we do for you? As he was about to leave, what can we do to, to help you to make things easier? Because they are putting their lives on the line just for their faith. They don't gather like this. For if they did, someone would be in the room taking names, knowing where they live and what their children's names are and, and on and on. But yet the church is thriving in China. Why? Well, he asked them, what can we do to make your life better? And you know what they said to him? Don't do it. Don't you dare help us. Because if it gets easier, we'll lose what we have. That pressure, that that pressure from without drove them to trust God like never before. And on the face of the earth, there, this very day, are believers in Jesus Christ who do not have a ounce of the luxury that we enjoy being able to come to church and go to church and freely worship where we live and breathe and have our being. We are blessed beyond measure. This, this group of people here were facing great difficulty Now, in verse 5, we see uh, the the culmination of this where they're brought before some leaders came to pass on the morrow that the rulers, the elders, the scribes, in verse 6, notice this. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, midst, they asked them, by what power, by what name have you done this? Peter was ready, and when we talk about moments in time where God may thrust us into a moment of interaction or a moment where we can speak or our lives can be a glowing testimony, I want to be reminded of, of not just what we hear them say, and we'll hear Peter's sermon, but what others saw in them, what others see in us. Peter was ready for this moment. In fact, later he would write in in a letter with his name attached, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. He was ready for the moment, and he spoke up. Listen to what he said. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by which mean he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel, that by that name of Jesus, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him that this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which has set it not, Of you builders, which has become the head of the corner, neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus, that's what we sang about earlier. Franklin Graham was invited to speak, to pray, at the inauguration of George W. Bush. And he was asked by a fellow clergyman, are you going to use Jesus' name?" Are you going to say the name Jesus when you pray, knowing that it will be controversial? He said, of course I am. And he said, I recommend you do the same. It's the only thing we have. Hear me now. When we get to the end of this life, the only thing that's going to matter is what we have done with Jesus. Amen? That's everything. This book is about Jesus. We are here to serve Jesus. We will stand before Jesus. It matters what we do with Jesus, decisions we make res- respective of him, and what we do with our lives and opportunities that He has so graciously give us all given us, given us all that we have is Jesus. Now look at verse thirteen. this is, this is the key, verse thirteen and fourteen. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them. That they had been with Jesus. I'm gonna to get to the next verse in a moment, but I want us to consider not so much what Peter has said, not so much the occurrence that set this all up, but I want us to think about what others saw in them, what they noticed in them, what stood out to them, what character traits. Did they relate to what they saw in the lives of Peter and John? And the first thing I would suggest is that they saw a changed life. And in that changed life, a changed life, hear me, that reminds people of Jesus. They were reminded of Jesus. When they saw Peter and John, they thought about Jesus Notice, they, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They, they knew who Jesus was. In fact, I find it fascinating the way Luke records this. He names a few names if you caught that. He doesn't, he doesn't speak about everyone that was in that crowd, but he didn't name a few. He named Caiaphas. He named the high priest. These are the ones who knew Jesus very well. They had the dossier on Jesus. They knew his background. They had done the investigations. They knew where he went, who he talked to, what homes he went to. They knew all about Jesus. Peter and John, perhaps not so much. But when they saw them, there was something about Peter and something about John that reminded them of Jesus. (laughs) Don't you want to remind people of Jesus? I mean, when it comes down to the end of your life, what greater epitaph could be added to your life's accomplishments and works than They reminded people of Jesus. They resembled Jesus. I I like like the, uh, the, the approach Peter used and even what he said when he pointed out whom you crucified. Think about that. He was looking into the faces of the guys that did it. They were there. They knew Jesus. Peter and John, not so much. I wonder how much... I remind people of Jesus. I want to remind everybody I meet of him. I'm not so much worth remembering, but boy, he sure is. I can't do much to help people, but he sure can. I can't change lives myself, but he can change lives in such a way they will never be the same. If you believe that, say amen. I trust him. I know him. He's changed my life. What will they say about us? What do they say about our church? Do we remind people of Jesus? If you could see a picture, and I I had it in a slide once. I, I, don't, I don't know where it even is, but it's a picture that hung on the wall of my grandparents' house, of my grandfather, my grandmother, my mom, her two brothers, back in the 50s, I would say, the 1950s, Sitting in the middle was my grandfather, and if you could see that picture, if I could put it on the screen, you would think it was me. When my grandfather used to go to the church I pastored, they would think he was my dad. He so resembled, or I so resembled him. Were just, they, they, we just looked so much alike. I looked more like my grandfather than did my dad in his side of the family. And it's, it, it, it should be so. Now think about this. Why do I look like him? Because I'm related to him. We tend to look like people we're related to. Amen? If you're related to Jesus, we ought to resemble Jesus. That's what catches our eye as we focus in on what they saw in Peter and John. I grew up two hours southeast of here, a little town called McDermott, Ohio. When I... um, My my grandparents, grandpa that I was mentioning, he owned a bar. My dad was a nightclub entertainer. I didn't have much interest in church until when I was 14, I met a little girl, and she went to church. I thought I should go to church because she went to church. And she flat out told me, if you want to see me, you got to come to church. I'm in. I'm going to church. It was during school. I was 14. Again, I didn't drive a car. When school was out, I, I had to ride my bike to her house, which was 13 miles one way. That's a 26-round trip, if you hadn't figured that out already. It was a long scoot, and when, when school was out, I did that for a week or so, and it went out as much as I could. And I remember she called me. We talked on the phone. Party line. Anybody remember a party line? Yeah. Well... I was talking to Terry and whatever neighbor was listening in, and, and, and uh, she said, you can't ride your bike out next week. I'm not going to be here. We're going to church camp. And I said, what's that? I didn't know. Never been to one. She began to explain to me what church camp was. Five days in Greenfield, Ohio, preaching, services, crafts. And she was telling me all about it. All I heard was, in my mind, hey, you can see her, and you don't have to ride your bike every day. So I said, hey, I'll go. 20 bucks, 30 bucks, I don't remember what it was, it wasn't much, and they threw us in a car, drove to Greenfield, Ohio, uh, the, the, the driver was a man named Harry Hoopel. his brother's suitor owned an orchard there close to where my wife grew up, second night of church camp, I got saved. I've never gotten over that, by the way, I got gloriously saved, well we got Terry and I dated, we we gotten married, been married 42 years now. And Souter Hoople and Harry Hoople lived there, had an orchard. Souter was about this tall. And soaking wet, I'd put him at about 125 pounds. You could pick him up. But he was the most humble and influential man in the area. He took thousands of children to church, VBS. He had such a sweet demeanor, such a winsome uh, spirit about him that everyone loved him. He would go into bars back when the county was wet and he would pray in the bars and he prayed that part of the county dry. He'd just go in and stand and pray and leave and if they said something to him, he'd give him a dollar and ask if he could stand and pray. He'd pray and place would get quiet and conviction would fall. All the bars shut down because of that little fellow right there. Hundreds of men and women are in ministry today because of that little man and his influence. Never married. Died on the farm that he grew up on himself in his 90s at the time. When Terry and I got married, we went to this little Raredon Church of the Nazarene. You can still see it. It's there. And at Vacation Bible School, I'm telling you all this about Souter to to tell you a moment I'll never forget. Souter came to speak to the children one night and it was the last night of VBS. They had different speakers each night come in, teach a little Bible lesson to all the kids that came to VBS all week. And after Suter spoke, as he was walking out the door, a little girl asked the VBS director, Are you ready for this? She said, Was that Jesus? She had learned about him all week. She had heard about what he had done and the beautiful, sweet things he had done and the difference he had made and what he could do in her life, and she thought that that was him. Oh, Lord, help us to live close enough, to be so close and intimate with him that, and, and so close in our relationship that when others see us, we remind them of him. May that be said about us. May that be said about our families. May that be said about our church that we remind people of Jesus. It's what they saw. They saw a resemblance. But secondly, the power of a changed life sparks courage. It's not only around the resemblance they saw, but there was some boldness there. Now, it wasn't an arrogant boldness. It wasn't a prideful boldness. It's defined, boldness is, as not hesitating or fearful in the face of actual or possible danger or rebuff. Courageous, daring. That's what... That's what it is. That's what boldness is. Boldness in presumption. We, uh, it's having the courage to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of opposition. And hear me now. If there's ever a day that there is opposition to the gospel of Jesus or the truth of who Jesus is, we are living in it now. It may not be a violent oppression, but there are ideologies that are absolutely contrary to the word of God that are embraced, that are championed in all facets of of our culture. And our children are being transformed by those forces if we allow it. And when we stand for Jesus or speak up for Jesus and say that, hey, that's not what the Bible says, often we begin to be lumped into a category of the insane or the untrustworthy or the hateful or the bigoted, when in actuality, the very truth of this book is the only thing that can deliver a soul from sin, regardless of how evil, corrupt it is, and how demonic it is in our our world today. There are forces that embrace ideologies that are literally just demonic. The organization I work for, the Family Research Council, we're a policy organization and think tank in our nation's capital. And in our Center for Biblical Worldview, the data that we have unearthed on many of these things is startling, and how it has shaped our culture is startling as well. For example, in the United States of America today, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Only 19% of those who go to church have a biblical worldview. 21% of those who call themselves born again have a biblical worldview. 51% of those who think they have a biblical worldview, 51% think they do, but only 6% do. Now, worldview, your worldview, and you've got one, it's how you understand Life, it's it's how you understand where you came from, what your purpose is, where you're going. It influences your morals, it influences your faith, it influences every aspect of your life. And a worldview is formed between the ages of 2 and 13, according to our data. By the time you're 13, you're going to live with that worldview, perhaps for the rest of your life, unless God intervenes, and God changes worldviews all the time. The greatest influences in culture we found through the research of George Barna, number one, number one influence in culture in America, movies, movies, and television, then music, then the internet and social media. Books are there as well. Then government, then family. The church isn't even in the top 15. Where they lived and breathed and had their being was a culture that was vacant of the gospel and eerily similar to where we live today in many respects. Not in this building. No, 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 no. But out there in the world, out there in culture, we may find ourselves surrounded by like-minded people, but there are millions upon millions of people who do not know Jesus, who without a personal relationship with him will end up in hell forever. And perhaps the only hope are some people who resemble Jesus, who have a boldness about them to say, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There is truth and there is falsehood. There is a God and his son's name is Jesus, and he died for the sins of the world. And regardless of how popular or unpopular it is, we still speak the truth, and we live the truth. It's, it's kind of like, what's it mean to be bold? Well, it's courageous, as I mentioned. It's not overconfidence or arrogance. It's like Joshua and Caleb, when everyone else said, there's no way we can go in there and take the land. And I think the words, if I'm quoting Caleb Wright, let's go in at once, we are well able to overcome it. He wasn't trusting in his strength. He was trusting in the God that he served. Hear me now. We can trust in the same God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. If we stand strong, oh, how God can use his church. It's fearless. Paul wrote to Timothy, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou shalt stir up the gift of God that is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. Somebody say amen to that. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When the Spirit of God is stirred up in the people of God, look out. God does great things through that church. It's, It's daring. It's like... It's like David in the Valley of Elah. You remember, when he saw Goliath out there, he didn't duck behind trees and bushes or boulders. No, he went straight to him. He went straight toward the giant without fear, in complete trust and confidence that the God that he served was able to deliver him. And, and it, re, it, it reminds me of the, the old question, is there, a, is, is there a giant in your life you're running from and hiding from that you ought to be running right toward? Because God's greater than any obstacle we face. We can have a resemblance of Jesus in our lives. We should have a resemblance of Jesus in our lives. And for that matter, we should be, we should be bold and courageous in this moment now, perhaps more than ever before. The presence of a holy God produces a character that is a character of action and action and purpose. There's one more thing that I think we observe when we look at Peter and John here. And it's in verse 14. I said I'd get back to it. I want to get back to it now. And beholding the man that was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. These guys were on trial. And as they're brought before the leaders, there's a resemblance of Jesus here. And then there's this courage and boldness that they saw. However, beyond and above that, there was evidence, clear evidence that was irrefutable (laughs) to the point that they were done talking. It was over. There was the man that was healed. You remember they were going up in the previous chapter uh, to the temple and to pray, and there was this man who, was begging for something temporary and Peter and John gave him something permanent. And he got up and he walked. And that's what set this whole thing in motion, to put them there before the seat of power, thrust them into a place where they were able to speak clearly of what they believed. And this, this is the moment that I'm talking about. May God give us moments of influence, lasting influence, where we can speak the truth of God, where we can live the truth of God, where the world that's desperately seeking something to satisfy can look in our direction and say, hey, I like what I see there. I think a holy life, a godly life is winsome. I think it's attractive. I was attracted to that when I, when I first got saved. There was something about those who had the goods, that's an old-fashioned term, you don't hear much, they were sold out, they were all in for Jesus, whatever you want to call it, they were, and I was drawn to that commitment, I was drawn to that experience, and I thought, whatever they've got, that's what I want, and I found it, and I've still got it, and everybody can have it, that's the good news, you can have all of Jesus that you want. Anybody know who Clara Peller was? If you do, don't shout it out, but just raise your hand. Anybody? Every now and then, right there, there. Oh, got a few. Good. Clara Peller was a mild-mannered cleaning lady in an office building where they had a company that put together commercials for, for, for uh uh, for television and they were looking for the certain, a certain person, a certain type of person. They had this idea in mind of who it ought to be and Clara was working there and I don't know if they spotted her in the hallway. I can't remember the exact story, but they found her and they, they they dressed her up and put her in a commercial and years ago, you could see Clara Peller walking into a into a business up to the counter and these were the words we remember when we see Clara Peller and that's this. Ready? Where's the beef? Remember that? They ought to to resurrect that commercial. That was a good commercial. And now I'm hungry. She would ask where the beef was. Wendy's hamburgers, they'd put a big old slab of meat on there, hanging over the edges, and this particular hamburger joint she was in, I guess she opened the bun up, and there's a little patty of meat down there. Where's the beef? Where's the proof? Where is it? Do you know if we call ourselves Christians, Everybody that hears us do that or knows we do has every right to look at our lives and say, where's the beef? Where's the proof? And there should be, along with a resemblance to Jesus, along with boldness, there must be proof that we really are who we say we are. They may not embrace it, and for many of us, you may have had the experience of being pushed back on by coworkers who made fun of you for being a Christian, made fun of you for, uh, for naming the name of Jesus. I worked for a company for 20 years, a long time ago, a company called Big Bear and Hearts. Anybody remember Hearts, Big Bear and Hearts? I was a store manager for them in uh, Wheelersburg, Ohio. This particular story takes me there. And there was a woman there who was an assistant manager who loved to poke fun at me. I was a holy roller. I was, uh, you name it, Bible thumper. I was everything, every little name you could tag onto a young preacher. She gave it to me, and I remember back in the year um, 1988, that was there was a book out that nobody here should have bought called I think it's 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming in 1988, and it, it, was, um, it, it was it was it never it never sold well after that after 1988, for some reason. (laughs) Sales just went down. (laughs) And so the day, whatever the day was, I don't remember the day, whatever the day was, he was telling everybody, hey, I'm going to watch our manager, Mr. Throckmorton, see if he disappears during the day. And she was just really, you know, jabbing and some would laugh, she would laugh, and I was always kind. And we were, doing commercial, we were doing a commercial, recording a commercial for the company there that day. And I, I, I had a part in it, and I think she was back in, behind the camera saying, I want, it's going to happen right where they're filming. It's going to happen, and he's going to just disappear, and the Lord's coming back. And She made fun of me for, for quite a while. One night, her house caught on fire, and um, her husband had to jump through a plate glass window. It was in the dead of winter. Almost died, almost bled to death doing that. They lost everything they owned. And the first person she called was me. And the first thing she asked me to do was to pray. I got to lead her and her husband to the Lord. And God uh, did some wonderful things in their life. I will tell you, regardless of how people treat you or how they respond to you, if you're living a life that's honoring to God, they are watching you. And if there's evidence there of a true relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not going to miss it. They may never reach out to you like she reached out to me, but there may be a moment where that's the catalyst that adds to someone else's words that leads them to faith in Jesus Christ. So know this, that your influence, no matter how great or small, there must be proof in our lives for our influence to have a lasting effect for the gospel. They resembled Jesus. They were bold for Jesus, and and there was... Actual evidence that nobody else could say anything against. I love that. See, this isn't just the the heart's cry of an unsatisfied world. It's the the high calling and plain-spoken desire of a creator who desires to pour his Holy Spirit into and through his creation, proving he is who he says he is. Over in the book of Romans where we have... Paul's great treaties of faith and, and how he unpacks what it is to know Christ and, and, and what Christ can do for us as he shifts gears in the 12th chapter. He, he, he begins by by saying to us, therefore, my brethren, uh, I, he's calling us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. So, this is what God can do, but this is what you need to do. Present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And hear this and be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That the proof is there. You do what you can and give yourself to him. But here's the good news. When we give ourselves to him, God can take us, a willing vessel, and he can fill us with his presence and he can use us for his glory so that we will resemble him and we will have boldness and there will be a proof there that is above reproach that will touch a world that is desperately seeking something that's real, something that's real. The power of a changed life shows Jesus to others. The power of a changed life sparks courage. In fact, you, you, you spark courage in others. When you live a godly life, others want to stand up. had a had a wonderful interview with, um, her name was Newman. I can't remember her first name, but she grew up in Germany. She grew up during Hitler's reign. In fact, she met Hitler as a child, and she looked at, she lived through the, the war, and then she was looking at her country after the war, and she, in, in assessing what had happened, came up with a, uh, a phrase that intrigued Colson. It was called uh, the spiral of silence. Spiral of silence. She said, when, when, when one person spoke up and was knocked down or shot or then the price of speaking up went up and everyone else knew it. There are a few more courageous that stood up but then when they were silenced the price got even steeper and it went from having the courage and ability to speak to what was happening to this spiral of silence to where no one said anything though they knew everything was wrong. Around them, There's a world that's trying to silence the voice of the church in many regards, the true biblical perspective of what it is to live for God. But in the midst of all that, may God continue to raise up and encourage great churches like this as we resemble Jesus and as we stand strong and as there's proof in our lives that is beyond reproof. Repute. I guess the question is, what about you? What about your life? Does there need to be more of a resemblance in you? (laughs) I'm talking to real people here. I can't see your faces because of the light, but I see heads, and every now and then they nod. How 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 are we resembling Jesus when somebody cuts us off on the freeway? Or do we horn cuss them? <laughs> or look at them in a less than civil way? Do I resemble Jesus when, when things don't go right? When poof, the bank messes something up or they forget to refill my prescription and I got to go out of town and just last week that was where I was doctor didn't call it in and man I had to leave and I had an hour to get to the airport and you're wondering aren't you did he resemble Jesus well I had to because the people in the pharmacy used to go to my church (laughs) yes I did on the inside well no no let's just keep going Do you need to be more like Jesus? Do you need to be more courageous? Do you need to have more proof? (laughs) Here's where it becomes real for each and every one of us. God has given us a moment, just like he gave Peter and John a moment, to have incredible influence or not. And one person can make such a difference It was one or two people that made a difference in my life. You perhaps can think about the one person that made a difference in your life, who led you to the Lord or prayed for you or witnessed to you. Whose lives are we making a difference in? Venus Brzee said once, we are debtors to give the gospel in the same measure in which we've received it. In other words, we owe it to those who we influence and touch with our own lives to be just as influential or have just as much love and care as those who, who loved us and cared for us. I'm reminded, as I think along those lines of, of a book I read a number of years ago, it, it's, it's, a, it's an account of a piece of history that I've always loved. And since I just spent a few days in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a little north of Gettysburg, I, I I I remembered this story driving down here this morning. It's about a 34-year-old professor of rhetoric from Maine by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. He was in Gettysburg in July of 1863. He was in the fight of his life. Former professor, as I said, he's a colonel now in the Union Army. And if you've been to Gettysburg, where he was placed and his 20th Maine was placed, was out on a long rocky ridge, and at the very end, uh, a a place today called Little Round Top. He was put there, uh, placed there by Colonel Vincent and his men of the 20th. At that place in the line, he said, Whatever you do, this line must hold. No one can get around you, no one can get through you, for if they do, they have a downhill run to flank uh, every other part of this line. And you're, you're, the, you're the most important piece of this. Chamberlain couldn't withdraw. He knew he had to do this. And, and, and 80,000 men were there fighting on, on the side of the Union. At 2.30 p.m. on this particular day, the 2nd of July, the first charge came up the hill. Uh, from the 15th and 17th regiments of Alabama, and they they fought, and they were pushed back down. They pushed them back down, only to the face with a second and a third charge. On the fourth assault, Chamberlain himself was shot in in the belt buckle, <laughs> and didn't it didn't kill him or hurt him. It probably hurt, but he thought, "I'm not going to get shot in the back. I'm, if I'm going to get shot, I'm going to get shot facing forward," and he stayed in the fight, and he. He, he knew what he was facing. He knew what his men were facing. And after that that fourth charge was pushed back down the hill, um, the fifth charge, excuse me, Tom, Chamberlain's younger brother, and an old grizzly soldier uh, named uh, Sergeant Tozier came up. They'd asked for help from the 83rd. There was no help available. And it was kind of a somber moment. They're still fighting the days not that old. and. And here they are with no help. They're getting shot to shreds, and they're getting murdered. Really, on their flank is what the uh, uh, the the sergeant told him. They started the day with 300. They're down to 80. And then he asks Tom, his brother, to find out how much ammunition's left. And he said, "Uh, "We've been shooting a lot." He said, "I know." He said, "I want to know how much ammunition we have." And Tom leaves. And as Tom ran to check, a 12-year-old boy who's up in a tree looking out down over the hill, he hollers out at the colonel, Colonel, they're reforming now, and there's more of them. And it was true. A regiment from Texas had joined uh, the regulars from Alabama, and they were regrouping, and they were beginning to shout and scream as they did and prepare to come up the hill. Joshua Chamberlain's brother gets back about this time, Talk about timing and says, We're out of ammunition, just whatever we've got in our guns, one or two in our in, in our bags. That's it. We're done. We are we're totally out. And so he was faced with an incredibly unbelievable moment. And as they're hollering at him, what do we do? What's next? What should I tell the men? All this was going on in his head. He walks to the edge and he looks down at the 15th and 14th Alabama and the Texas regiment that was alongside them and he turns and he looks at sergeant tozier and the other men and he said this he said fix bayonets and they did he told the sergeant he said form a great right wheel and execute and one of the young lieutenants said what's a great right right wheel tozier said he means to charge son that means we're going to charge And Joshua Chamberlain, with no ammunition, the 80 men left of the 20th main, stood at the top of Little Round Top, and on the colonel's orders, with bayonets raised, they charged down the hill toward 400 armed soldiers. Here's what happened next. When they saw the colonel leading the charge, When they saw the men charging themselves, they thought to themselves, well, these guys have been reinforced. And they literally laid down their weapons and surrendered. 400 men to 80 men with no ammunition. And they held little round top and held the line. And what happened in Gettysburg, most historians say set in motion things that you and I experience today. For example, most of those who have looked back at this incredible moment tell us that if Chamberlain had not charged that day, and if he had not made that one decision, and they would have overrun the hill, they would have taken and flanked the, 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 the troops, that Getty's word would have been over And the Union would have lost at Gettysburg. And if the Union would have lost at Gettysburg and the South had won the war, the war itself would have been over by that summer. And most believe that if that would have happened, we would not have a United States of America as we know it today. We would have a a, a number of states united, and then we'd have another group of states united. And most tell us we, we would look like Europe with different states and different countries all packaged together on our landmass. if that would have happened. If he wouldn't have said charge, if they would have taken the hill, that would have happened. And beyond that, when Hitler would have come to power in 1939, think about this. If that would have happened, then there would not have been, uh, as Hitler swept across Europe in the 1940s, there would have not existed a United States with the strength and the wherewithal to add value, resources, and eventually soldiers into the the theater in Europe defeating Nazi Germany. And when Hirohito would have swept through uh, the, the, the South Pacific, there would not have been a country big enough or strong enough or wealthy enough to fight a war on two fronts like we have here in the United States of America." And the world that we live in today would have been different if it had not been for one man named Joshua Chamberlain who on a hot July day picked up his sword and led his men over that hill. One man, never belittle your influence. Never think that you're not having a lasting impact for your resemblance of Jesus and your boldness and the evidence that God places in your life speaks loudly and effectively to a culture that is desperately looking for something that is real and true. And God wants to use you outside of these walls, in your homes, building a biblical worldview into your families, into your church, into your community, shaping where we live and breathe, with the truth of who God is, so that years from now, those, if God tarries his coming, who live here, children, grandchildren of ours, will look at a different world. And more importantly than any of that, heaven will be richer, and eternities will be affected. Because of what we do, what you do, what lives do that resemble Jesus, what lives do that have evidence, what lives do that have boldness. What difference can be made? Maybe the question as I close is not what difference can be made, it's what difference will you make? What will you do decision-wise now? Today, What will you set in motion by how you look at your life and your family and your home and your influence that can have a lasting effect on the church you live in, on your family, on your community? What does God want to do in and through you today and in the days to come? I believe God's got great things ahead. If you believe that, say amen. amen. I believe that the same God that has blessed in the Scriptures that we so adore is willing and able to bless us here today. Nothing is impossible with him if we're willing to say yes to his will for our lives. Father, have your way in these moments. Bless the song that is sung. Bless the hearts that receive your word and receive the music and worship today. And may we draw close to you. May we seek you while you may be found. Call upon you while you are near. And may the decision we make today have a lasting impact and legacy in our lives and our testimony and the testimony of the gospel for, for eternity's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to stand, and as they're singing, if you need to seek God, come. If you need to pray, come. If you need God's touch, come. If you need to resemble Jesus more, oh, you need to come. If you need more power and strength in your life, seek him now. May God bless this moment.